Mark chapter 10. I continue to be impressed by the relevance of God's Word in our lives, both to our current situations, but also to our lives personally. I I hope and I, and I believe that what we're going to look at this morning will have great significance for all of us. Beginning in verse 17, Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Father, we pray again, Lord, a prayer of thanksgiving for the way you deal with each one of us. You are a very personal God. That were we the only person here in the barn this morning, were I sitting here by myself, you would be as as intimately caring for me as with the whole gathered fellowship. And that stuns me, Father, because I'm, I'm not capable of that kind of uh, personal compassion. But you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would look intently into our hearts with love this morning. And that you would speak to each one of us what we need to hear, that we might follow you closely. Walk with you more deeply, Father. Jesus, thank you. Thank you not only for your example, but thank you for speaking into our lives. And we ask that you do so now in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have gone to church, or even go to church right now, to check the box. Let's see. Breakfast, check. Teeth, check. Shower, check. Deodorant, check. (laughs) Dressed, check. Out the door, check. Church, check. I've done that. I've spent years doing that. Many of us have. Many of us were raised going. I fear that that's less and less these days, but... Many of us here today went to church, grew up perhaps going to church and checking the box each Sunday. See, been there, done that, good to go. But the problem with that mentality is we are not good to go. Because what that does is it develops among us, instead of lovers of God, it develops list keepers. Instead of world changers, which is what we're called to be, world changers, we become box checkers. As though we were checking a ballot, as many Christians did on Tuesday, with some stunning results. And I'm not even talking about the presidency, I'm talking about the moral issues on the ballot. And when you begin to look at the exit polls and see how Christians voted, I, I, was, I was amazed. Box checkers. 
The story of the rich young ruler introduces us to a box checker. Perhaps you will be able to relate to him as we go through and think about this. In some ways, maybe. In other ways, maybe not so much. But this guy, you would see him every synagogue in the Sabbath, checking that box. This was a good guy. Uh, probably carried around tracts of the Ten Commandments. You know, which he would pass out as he went. Likely he was a faithful giver. You know, tithe. Check. Tithe. Check. <laughs> this guy... <laughs> this guy keeps the rules. He does the right thing. He thinks by keeping the rules that the rules will keep him. He's the guy that you would certainly see nominated as a church leader. In fact, he very well may have been. I'll show you that in a moment. You could track his faith on a ledger. Just go down the boxes. Are they all checked? This guy is overtly as religious as they come. Check. And so when given the glorious opportunity to actually leave everything behind and follow Jesus personally, which on the surface most of us would claim, yeah, oh yeah, if Jesus showed up here and said, Rick, follow me, I'd be there. I'd leave everything, I'd go. And it's easy to say, but would you? He had the opportunity to be almost as close as the twelve. Jesus said to him, follow me. Remember the demon-possessed man? Legion? Cast the legion out? And he said, let me follow you. I'll go wherever you go. And Jesus said, no. I have another job for you. But with this young man, Jesus says, come follow me. Check it out. Be one of my guys. Join me in this journey. He has the opportunity but he walks away grieving. There's an empty box. The one he didn't check. The rich young ruler. By the way, where does this concept of the rich young ruler come from? Where do we get that description? You might say, well, well, Pastor, it's right there in the title above the story. <laughs> rich young ruler. Is that, is that where we get the name? Here's where we get it. Number one, he was a ruler. He was a ruler. Luke 18, verse 18, in the same story, tells us a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That word ruler is archon in the Greek, and it means a prince or a magistrate. Now, I said it just a second ago that it's possible that he was a church leader. I say that because in Mark chapter 5, we know that Jairus was a synagogue leader, right? Synagogue leader's daughter, his name was Jairus, Jesus sealed his daughter. Synagogue leader, when translated, is synagogue archon. Synagogue magistrate, synagogue ruler, some translations will say. So it's the same word used for Jairus as is used for this young man. So perhaps the rule in his life was over a synagogue. We don't know, but it's possible. We do know that he was in charge of something, but I'm thinking just based on the, on the text and what happens, he's probably more of a prince than a pastor. He's probably more of a, of a higher up in, in terms of, of political rule than perhaps religious. But again, that is left open to surmise. All we know is he was a ruler. Secondly, we know he was rich. He was rich. Look down at verse 22. It says that these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, depending on property values, you could be either be rich or poor. But in this case... We know he was rich. Luke even goes so far as to say in Luke 18.23, he was extremely rich. Extremely rich. Luke uses two words. 
And you got to think, when we get to Luke, eventually Luke is very, very specific in everything. All the Gospels are. But Luke is the researcher. Okay, So when Luke uses words, he's, he's absolutely purposeful in doing so. He uses two words to describe this young man. Plusios and Spodra. Plusios and Spodra. Plusios by itself means having an abundance of material things. But Luke adds Spodra, which means exceedingly. So not only is he well off, he is exceedingly well off. This guy's got it going on in the money area. He's got a serious portfolio. He, he should be paying more in taxes, really. You ask me. In the popular theology of the day, this rich ruler gang would be viewed as exceedingly righteous because of his riches. You had money, you were right with God. Period. And that mentality, it, all the way back to the days of Job, which we believe was in Abraham's time. From Job all the way up through the time of Jesus, that mentality persisted among the Jewish people. If you're blessed, you must be righteous. If you have stuff, you must must be good. You must have it together. That's the person to aspire to, the one who's righteous. It, It was prosperity gospel then. We have the same thing in the prosperity gospel now. If you're highly blessed, it's because you're doing it right. Not necessarily the case, and you and I know that. He was a ruler. He was rich. And number three, he was young. Matthew 19, verse 20 says, The young man said to Jesus, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Note that. That's often what a young man would say. I've done it. I've got it together. When I was younger, I thought I was a whole lot more righteous than I do now. I I remember having trouble, especially in my early teen years, thinking... I mean, I'm, I'm thankful for grace, just not really sure I need it. You know? Because I'm doing all the right things. I'm checking the boxes. It's all good. And it's amazing how age tends to pull the rug out from under youthful arrogance. Many of you recall looking at the world and thinking, I can do anything I want. And now you look back and go, I didn't do much of any of that. <laughs> the Greek word for young that Matthew uses is neoniskos, In the Greek, I know I'm throwing a bunch of words out. You never need to write these down. I'm just trying to explain what I'm trying to say here. Neoniskos is where we get the root word neos or neo. And we use it all the time in our English. In fact, in Greek, there's a lot of words that spill over into English far more than even we see with Hebrew. Neo meaning new or young, like a neophyte. Neophyte is a beginner. Or a neocon. A new conservative. Neapolitan. New ice cream. I don't know. (laughs) So this guy is rich, he's a prince, and he's young. You know who he is? He's the Fresh Prince of (laughs) Bel-Air. That's who he is. And I may refer to him that way a few times, so just let it go, man. While he seemed to have everything going for him, Okay, he's young, so he's, he's gotten this early on. He's, he's wealthy, exceedingly rich, so he's got no concerns. He's a ruler, so he's got some authority and responsibility and respect and all, again, at a young age. And yet, the truth is, this rich, young ruler is a box checker. And Jesus is going to help him outside the box. 
He's going to help him think through some things that perhaps he had never thought through before. But I want you to understand something else about this guy. Though he is obviously religious, box checking is not exclusively Jewish or Christian in nature. A lot of people would say so. They look at church-going people and say, ah, you're just a bunch of legalists, or you're just, you're just a bunch of people trying to fool yourselves by keeping certain things, and it's, it's no good. Hey, there's another word for box-checking in this world, and that, that is humanism. Humanism is as box-checking as it comes. In fact, if you think about it, true Christianity, as shown to us by Jesus, has nothing to do with checking boxes at all. But humanism does because it is the religion of self-reliance. The religion of self-reliance. Webster's definition of humanism is a doctrine, attitude, or way of life centered on human interests or values. Did you hear that? A doctrine. It is a teaching. But rather than being God-centered or Christ-centered, it is human-centered. It is human religion. It is the religion of man. It's the religion people tend to be born into. It's the religion that Jesus invites us away from. Because if left to ourselves, we live that religion highlighting, elevating ourselves, elevating mankind, humanism. Check. And that's a a problem that we see in our world today. A philosophy, Webster says, that usually rejects supernaturalism and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. I read that and I thought, you know what? Karl Marx was right. Religion is the opiate of the masses. Not Christianity. Not following Jesus, but religion. Because the mass of humanity gravitates toward religious box checking. And it's so funny to me because I run into people all the time who say, well, I'm just not religious. Yes, you are. You're just not Christian. You may not be following Jesus, but you're a liar if you don't think you're religious. You have a to-do list at home? You're religious. You have a certain plan for your life? You're religious. You have a doctrine that you live by, a, a mindset, a way of doing things. You are religious. And Jesus comes to us, and we say all the time in here that He is about relationship and not about religion. Understand that He is about pulling us out of that very thing that would condemn us for eternity. Religion. He's not just about pulling people out of denominationalism and into a relationship. He, he wants to pull us out of the religion of humanity. And bring us into the family of God. Doesn't that sound better? The family of God or the religion of humanity? Take your choice. I would so much rather be a part of the family of God. Well, Jesus says you've got to think outside the box. We're going to deal with three primary, primary issues here in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's questions this morning. Actually, the first question, the one question, three issues that become apparent as he asks Jesus, as he speaks to Jesus. And these are issues I believe everyone can relate to. This is why I'm talking about humanism. I think both religious people, but also humanistic people who are religious, they all deal with these issues, the three things that he asks. Verse 17, look at it and think about it. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Okay, just note his posture here. He sees Jesus and he rushes to where he is. And when he gets there, he doesn't go, Hey, Jesus, high five. <laughs> There's great respect here. He kneels down before him. He is now in the posture of worship 
And he asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Three things. He starts off saying, good teacher. Good teacher. Number one, the sense of divinity. Now, I had never thought this before studying it this week, but I think the exceedingly rich neophyte prince truly had a sense of the divinity of Jesus. That he was perhaps kneeling before the divine. He rushes up, he kneels down before a homeless, itinerant rabbi. (laughs) But there's something about this man that causes the rich young ruler to kneel down before him. Why? Because, again, I believe he has an idea in his mind that perhaps, perhaps, Jesus is, in fact, Messiah. He is, in fact, deity. In fact, I can even prove it a little more. In the Greek text, the words are reversed from how we see them in our English text. It's not good teacher. It's teacher, good one. He comes rushing up to him and he says, Rabbi, good one. Not because Jesus had just told a funny joke either. (laughs) Good one, Rabbi. (laughs) Rabbi, good one. And any box checker in Judaism of the day would know you never call a man good one. You never call a rabbi good one. In fact, you look through Talmud, you look through all the Jewish writings, you will never find a rabbi referred to as good one. Because this was something reserved only for God, because they understood God alone is good. It's what Jesus says. It's how Jesus replies. He calls him on it. Why do you call me good one? No one is good except God alone. The young man knew this. Jesus knew this. Everyone knew it. Why does Jesus call him on it? Why not just accept the compliment? Well, thanks. Because Jesus is always pulling for faith. I love this about Jesus. Everything people says, he's looking for a way to draw faith out. And with this young man, Rabbi, good one. Okay, let's, let's stay there for a moment. Let's think about what you just said. What do you believe about what you just said? He's drawing out belief. He knows that there is enough of a sense of divinity in this young man's heart to lift it out and and bring it into the light. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is always about bringing things to light. In His nature, in His character, it's what His Spirit does in the world to bring things to light. To shine the light on things. John chapter 1, verse 8. Talking about John the Baptist says he was not the life. But he came to testify about the light. Now listen to this description. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Jesus is about enlightenment. Jesus is enlightening this young man. But we need to understand something here. And perhaps as Christians we have lost sight of this very thing. In the conscience of every single man and woman on earth, there is a sense of divinity. What are you saying, Rick? Everyone believes in God. What? Yeah, every single person has a sense of God. Believes in God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. That is, by living and walking and breathing in this world, it is undeniable that something of the divine did this. Well, what about all these you know, 200 years of evolutionary theory and all of this? What about all the self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics? 
What do you do with them? We all know there's a God, but some just don't want to know. We all have in our hearts that sense of the divine, but some would reject it. Their lifestyle would take too much of a hit if they were to accept that there is a God. And there are people who, who grow up hearing about God. People who grew up in church but then end up later on in life being atheists. What are they? Rebellious. That's all it is. Atheism, agnosticism, it is living in rebellion. It is saying, I don't want to think about that. I refuse to deal with that. I won't have this in my life. I reject it. Any, for you to be able to reject something, something has to be rejectable, right? You don't reject nothing. Everyone believes in God. But some don't want to believe, though they do. Paul says very clearly, Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Bible students? Suppress the truth. In unrighteousness. That is an absolute key to the heart of man. It's not they don't know the truth. It's not that they don't believe in the truth. It's that they suppress the truth. The truth is there. But it's suppressed because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. God hardwired every one of us to believe in God. It's not just the physical evidence. It is the heart evidence. Every man, woman, and child on earth believes in God. They just don't necessarily want to accept that belief. Isn't it amazing when you come to a place of finally believing how your heart just Oh, it just feels right, finally. There's a peace that comes. There's a joy that comes the moment you give yourself over to faith that you don't have otherwise. Otherwise, it's always a stress, a, a strain. But you come out of the box and you say, okay, I know there's a God. It's just like everything starts to make sense. Everything gets better. But if I can rationalize the truth away, if I can set it aside, if I can ignore it, if I can suppress it, then I can do whatever I want to do. And I'm right back in the religion of humanism. I'm right back with myself at the center. But gang, to live that way, and I'm speaking, I know, to a lot of believers here. But I'm trying to help us think about, as I've been thinking about this week, those who would claim to be non-believers. Where are they really coming from? And those who suppress the truth, who try to ignore the truth, are living haunted lives. Back in 1917, Francis Thompson wrote one of my favorite poems. And you should look it up. I'll just give you a snippet of it here. Look it up online or get a copy of it. It's called The Hound of Heaven. The Hound of Heaven. Thompson wrote, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, upvisted hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated to down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat, and a voice beat more instant than his feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. The hound of heaven. That if you live a life of suppressing the truth, guess what? The truth and God Himself dog you your whole life. 
Because to suppress the truth is something you have to keep doing every single day. You've got to keep suppressing. You've got to keep pushing back until, as Paul writes, the conscience gets seared and you no longer believe because you fried your own spirit. We can try to suppress the truth, but that sense of divinity, the reality of God our Creator, known in every heart, will dog us all our days. Now you might say, Rick, I don't suppress the truth. That's why I'm here. That's right. I know that's why you're here. This is not an indictment about those of us who have chosen to be here and hear about divinity, to hear about God. It's an invitation to reality. Brothers and sisters, a lot of people are really discouraged waking up Wednesday morning or staying up into the night Tuesday night. Discouraged because of the direction of our country. Discouraged because the non-believers are pulling some fast ones. And there's legislation getting through. And now Washington State. Everything that you preached last week, Rick, totally bogus. It doesn't matter to Washingtonians. Yes, it does. They're just suppressing. Understand that it's really easy to look around at work or at school and assume that you are surrounded by non-believers. Let me say this clearly. You are surrounded by non-believers who believe. They just don't want to admit it. It's in there. The idea, the sense of the divine is in there. Say these people don't believe in God. They don't have any idea about God. They certainly won't listen if I try to discuss God. And it's simply not true. In fact, I'll go a step further. It is a lie of the deceiver. This is Satan's way of saying to believers, don't talk about this because you're just going to offend somebody. Don't say anything because it's just going to upset. They don't want to hear it anyway. And so we go, oh, okay. And we listen to that inserted thought of the enemy instead of being bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ and talking about divinity, which people truly in their heart of hearts do believe. And what Jesus does, simply by turning this young man and saying, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. He raises the issue of divinity. What a great example for you and for me as followers of Jesus to raise the issue of divinity. Raise the issue of God. Everyone believes in God. Sometimes that belief just needs to be brought to light. Bring it to light. Paul puts it this way, 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Christians, listen. Are you checking boxes? Or are we so alive in the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit that we're naturally drawing out conviction? If we are box checkers, we are not only fooling ourselves, we're fooling the unbelieving, so-called unbelieving world. we got to get outside of the box. we got to stop being concerned about making sure that our attendance record is good and be more concerned about people who say they don't believe, but they really do. And the only way to reach into the heart and bring to light that belief is to live in your faith. Filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Word of God and in the power of the Spirit. And if we're living that way, people will be convicted. The question will start to rise. Why do you call Jesus good? Why do you think Jesus is good? There's a great conversation starter right there. What do you think about Jesus? Oh, he's a good teacher. Really? Why do you call him good? 
He was a prophet of sorts. Okay. Did you say he was a good prophet? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Most people think Jesus was a good guy. Why do you think that? What is it about Jesus? And if they've never heard about Jesus, perhaps it's time to start pointing out how good he really is. There's a second issue that's apparent in the young man's question. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To inherit eternal life. So he has a sense of divinity. Secondly, he has the sense of eternity. The sense of eternity. Something else hardwired into the heart of man. Did you know... Eight out of ten Americans still believe there's a heaven. Eight out of ten, if asked on the street, believe there is a heaven. And according to Barna, 75% of Americans think they're going there. Why? Well, you tell me. Why do people think they're going to heaven? Because they're good. I'm a good person. Of course I'm going to go to heaven. I'm good. You know what? No one is good except God alone, Jesus says. But that sense of eternity is there. And yet, though 80% plus of Americans believe in heaven, we are losing the values debate. We are losing the moral battle. I'm not talking Republican and Democrat. Again, remember, I'm talking about values and morals and issues on the ballot that people voted on Tuesday voting in marijuana use. Voting to redefine marriage in three states. All three. All of these things, they tell me we're losing the debate of values in our country. And you know what? I was thinking about that And the Lord spoke this so loudly to me. That's not the primary front that I want you to fight. Now I was kind of surprised with that because I like fighting that front. I like to talk values and morals and issues and and really, you know, get on my high horse and my bandwagon or maybe have my high horse drawing my bandwagon. I don't know how that works, but (laughs) I want to talk. Morality. I want to fight, you know. Morality issues, because they're black and white and clear and easy, and I can, I can sink my teeth into those things. And God, I believe, is saying to you and to me this week, that is not the primary front. Well, what is, Lord? Lost souls. The battle for lost people. That is your primary battle. Not winning the values debate. Because the values debate has been going on for 6,000 years and will continue until Jesus comes. That's not why we're here. We're not here to win elections. We're here to win souls. And the difference is so huge to me. I am so thankful that the election season is over. And not just because I'm tired of it, but because we can now get back to the business of saving lives, which is why we were here in the first place. We weren't here to pass legislation. Luke 19.10, The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost, not to win the battle of public opinion. That was never a concern of Jesus. People may disagree on the definition of marriage or whether or not a person has the right to light up a doobie. (laughs) There are all kinds of things people will fight and argue about. But while we need to continue to walk on the moral high ground, my friends, we need to understand that eternity is tough to ignore. Because it's just as every man, woman, and child has a sense of God in their hearts, every man, woman, and child has the sense of eternity. Everyone knows. Oh, they may try to suppress, again, 
But we know that we know that there's something beyond this life. And we might actually see more people saved if instead of debating moral issues, we chose to deal with eternal issues, which is always what Jesus does. He goes to the eternal. Instead of trying to, listen to this, instead of trying to hold people to standards that they don't accept anyway, maybe what we really need to be doing is getting to the heart of eternity. Had a conversation Wednesday night with a sister asking this very question. What do I do about this moral issue going on in my family? And the question I asked her, are these family members believers? No, they're not. Then you don't worry about it. Why would we look at a non-believing person and expect out of them the same moral standards that we expect out of a believer? They don't have those moral standards. They see no purpose for those moral standards. So you have two approaches with them. Beat them over the head about moral standards they're not accepting anyway, or talk to them about Jesus. The reality is, is when a heart is changed by Jesus, the moral standards follow pretty quick after. And so we don't have to worry about that. Do you have a brother, a sister, a father, a friend who's homosexual? The answer is not saying, you're sinning. The answer is saying, Jesus loves you and wants to pull you out of the pain and the hurt. You have someone dealing with some kind of a sin issue in your life and it's it's divided you in relationship because you know they are not living up to the same kind of standards God has called us to. They need Jesus desperately. And they know it because they have a sense of the divine and they have a sense of eternity. A sense of eternity. One of my favorite questions to ask, and it's a real good one, where are you going to go when you die? 80% of Americans would say heaven. Are you sure? 80% of Americans would say, yeah. (laughs) How do you know? 80% of Americans, I'm a good person. The question that follows, what if you're not good enough? What if you're just short of the mark? What if you're not quite, you're really good, but you've got to be just an inch more good than you are. What if you don't make it? What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying, brothers and sisters, we need to push the button of eternity more often. When talking to friends and family, we need to be concerned about their eternal soul, not about their values choice right now. I'm not saying accept the values. I'm not saying just just throw it out the door and say, ah, it doesn't matter. People can do whatever they want. No, I'm saying make the issue an eternal issue, not an immediate issue. Don't fight on Facebook. Don't email back and forth. Don't argue over morals. Talk about eternity. And talk about Jesus. Ecclesiastes 3.11 Solomon who uh, understood humanism very well. He said, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their hearts. Yet, so that a man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. I love that. Listen again. He has set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning to the end. What does that mean? It means God created the heart of, of man to sense eternity... But, he left us unable to fully comprehend it. (laughs) That's great. That is so God. He gives us a sense without the comprehension. Why? Because only in him will we begin to comprehend. 
Only when we come to Him will we begin then to understand. When we studied the book of Ecclesiastes, we put it this way. He made us for eternity, but He set us in time. He made us eternal beings, but He stuck us in this big clock. Why would He do this? Because there is no religion that can answer the longing of the human heart to be eternal. And there's no human relationship that can fulfill the desire of life beyond now. There is no success or achievement that satisfies the eternal hunger that sits in the heart of every person. No wonder the fresh prince comes along to Jesus asking, asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy's got it all. He's got everything. But he realizes at this young age that he's already unsatisfied. If he were satisfied, he would never ask the question. Young men, young women understand. You can have it all. And it won't mean a thing. You'll still wonder about eternity. By the way, are you unsatisfied right now? Are you unsatisfied with where you are in your life? Are you discontented? Are you frustrated with the way life seems to be right now? Be it financially or emotionally or spiritually. Here's an answer for you. Here's something you can do today to make a difference. Focus on eternity. Focus, don't ignore it. Look to it. Think about it. Consider it. Where you're going. Titus 2.11 A verse we, I've quoted a lot in here. It's one of my favorites. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Wow, successfully is not one of those things. Sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. How? How do I do that? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's how you do it. You look forward. You don't look back. You don't even look at right where you are. You look at His coming. You look into eternity. As Paul did. 2 Timothy 4.8 In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Do you get excited thinking about the coming of Jesus? Are you looking into eternity? I guarantee you, those people who are eternal watchers, Jesus lookers, are happy people. They are satisfied people. They are content people because they know that now is just a step on the way to where we're going to be, where everything is going to be perfect. But those, Christian or non-Christian, whose heads are down and who have the blinders on and are focused on this life and what we're going to get out of this life, you will never be satisfied. You will always find yourself coming back to that place of discontent. God has placed in all people the sense of divinity and the sense of eternity. But the third issue... In the young prince's question trumps the other two. In fact, I didn't really want to talk about the other two. That was just lead up to this. This is, I believe, the issue for all people. Don't miss it. Look at the question again. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? Number three, the struggle of humanity. The struggle of humanity. 
And Jesus picks up on it immediately. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Check. Do not commit adultery. Check. Do not steal. Check. Do not bear false witness. Check. Do not defraud. Eh. Honor your father and mother. Check. Verse 20. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Remember, he's a young man. So how long has he really been doing this? It's one thing to keep all these things until you're 15. You know, try till you're 48. Try keeping all these things until you're 65. Try till you're 73. You know, that kind of longevity. There's the perseverance of the saints right there. Okay, I've kept all these things from my from my youth up. He says. So, where's the issue? He's done what Jesus asked, right? No, he hasn't. And don't miss this. We talked about this midweek. If you weren't there, let me bring you up to speed. In verse 19, Jesus quotes the second table of the Ten Commandments. It's called two tables because the first half deals with commandments related to our relationship with God. The first five. The second five deal with our relationship to each other and how we behave in this life. First and second table. The second table of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verses 12 through 16, is what Jesus quotes here. But in quoting it, Jesus leaves out the tenth commandment, do not covet. And Wednesday I shared, some people think that covetousness was this man's problem, so Jesus left it out to kind of passive-aggressively suggest that that's what's going on. But I don't see Jesus that way. I I don't see him as passive-aggressive. Typically what Jesus does is he brings you right to the problem. He's very clear about the problem. He spells it out for you so you don't miss it. And that's exactly what he does right here when he says, do not defraud. Do not defraud is not one of the Ten Commandments. Do not defraud is a summation of do not steal and do not bear false witness. Why does Jesus throw that one in there when it's not even one of the Ten Commandments? I think because that's the problem. Because perhaps this young man is defrauding. He in some way is combining this issue of theft and bearing false witness, which he thinks he's checked those boxes... But in reality, there is defrauding going on. And notice this also. Jesus throws things out of order. Honor your father and mother is the first in the second table, not the last. But Jesus puts it last. So the question is, and you midweek Bible students, you know this, He sums up commandments 8 and 9, do not steal, do not bear false witness, with do not defraud. I read that and I thought, well, is this guy defrauding someone? And then He puts... He puts the fifth commandment last, out of order. Honor your father and mother. Is he defrauding his parents? Is that what's really going on here? Well, how could he do that and be checking the box? It's perspective, gang. Perspective. I'm just going to make a suggestion, and it was Jimmy who brought this up to me Wednesday night afterward. He said, maybe the guy's problem was Corban. What's Corban? Look back at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 9. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. Perhaps, by the way, the rich young ruler, the archon, was a Pharisee. A young Pharisee. Or perhaps in line two, the Sanhedrin. Maybe he was on the Sanhedrin. I don't know. Again, that's just surmise. 
But the Pharisees were the ruling class of the Jews, and Jesus, in dealing with them, says in chapter 7, verse 9, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. What does that mean? They were checking boxes without thinking about what it really means. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother shall be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would, be, that would help you is korban, that is, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, you do so many things such as that. Korban was the Pharisees' way of keeping all their stuff, but saying, no, it's devoted to God. You know, my house, my property, my land holdings, my portfolio, it's all devoted to God. I get to use it, you know, because I'm His man. But it's devoted to Him, so I can't give it to my parents. I can't care for my parents in their old age. I can't take care of their needs. I can't turn it back around to them. i got to take care of what I have korbaned. Perhaps that's what's going on right here. It's an interesting thought. But for all that, it's just one possibility. But you know what? Whatever the sin issue was, there's a greater problem going on here that tends to mask all kinds of sin issues. It is the very struggle of humanity, and it is inherent in the young man's question, what shall I do? Now notice this. Jesus does not say, if you keep these commandments, you have eternal life. Notice what he says. You know the commandments. He doesn't answer the question, keep the commandments. You know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not blah, 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 blah. No. He says, you know the commandments, right? He's in process here. He's not answered the question yet. He gives this brief list. What's he doing? Again, Jesus is raising the struggle to the surface. He's bringing the real issue to light. He's drawing out the young man's heart. For all his wealth, for all his youthful vitality, and his royal achievements, this man still felt eternally uncertain. Jesus is in essence saying to him, you've done all this, you've checked all the boxes, and yet you're still coming to me asking me about your eternal security? You're still not sure? Some people say this young man came to Jesus just to justify his self-righteousness. Cocky and self-sure saying, look what I've done. I don't think so. I do not believe that was on his heart. I actually think he came to Jesus in absolute sincerity. What are you talking about? He knelt before him, amazed. He inquires of him with, I believe, some degree of anxiety because when he left, he left in deep sorrow. He's not putting up a front. He's not trying to justify himself. Verse 21 tells us, looking at him, Jesus felt a great love for him. Jesus felt a great love for him. Why? Jesus was looking right into his heart intently. That word looking means to look with intensity. He's looking intensely into the heart of this young man. He loves him because he sees in him the desire to really know God and to truly be secure in eternity. And so he pushes the fresh prince one step further. He says, one thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. 
And the one thing Jesus says He must do, He can't do. Jesus puts His finger on it. On the one thing for which the rich young ruler had no excuse. Was it covetousness? Was it Corban? Was it cold hard cash? You know, what was it? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what commandment or law or rule we violate or, or, or have violated. What Jesus is pointing out here is that there is a box you can never check. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's nothing you can do. You can't check that box. Wake up, check. Breakfast, check. Teeth, check. Dress, check. Out the door, check. Eternal life. I can't check that box. Nothing I can do. I can't do it. I can't get there. Note this, down in verse 23. Jesus looking around said to His disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And we think, yeah, yeah, stick it to the wealthy guys. All right. (laughs) And the disciples were amazed at His words because again, they equated riches with righteousness. But Jesus answered again, and note this, note this. He said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. For who? Everyone. It's not just the wealthy who have a hard time. You know why the wealthy have a hard time entering the kingdom? Because everyone does. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It is hard to enter the kingdom of God. It is a box you cannot check. They were even more astonished, verse 26, and they said to them, well, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Check. Let God check the box. He's the only one who can. You can't do it. The people asked Jesus a similar question in John chapter 6, verse 28. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. In other words, you can't do anything. You have to believe in what He's done. You've got to believe in the box already checked. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. That's a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And my friends, that means everyone. Every person. We all have the sense of the divine. We all have the sense of the eternal. We all struggle in humanity. And so how do we deal with that struggle? What do we do? We get outside the box. We stop checking. We go back to verse 21, which tells us, looking intently at Him, Jesus felt a love for Him. And that's one of my favorite moments in all Scripture. Because right there, when you'd think there'd be judgment, when you'd think He'd be rolling His eyes at, oh, brash young man, you don't have a clue. He looks at Him with love. And it gives us amazing insight into the heart of Jesus. Notice that. Only the Holy Spirit would know that He looked at Him with love. Mark wouldn't know that. Peter couldn't determine that. Do you ever really know what's in another person's heart? Oh, you can say you think you know what's in their heart based on their behavior. But how do you describe looking at someone with love in your heart? And yet we know because the Spirit told Peter or told Mark, write this down. He looked at him with love. And you've got to get this. What Jesus felt for this rich young ruler, He feels for the entire world. 
He feels this same love for the homosexual activist in Seattle. He feels this same love for the Republican who lost and the Democrat who won. He feels this same love for every single American who doesn't have a clue who's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This same love for every Muslim in the world. For every Mormon in the world. This same love, praise God, for every Christian. This same love for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's the way, gang, Jesus' followers have to look at the world. Our battle is not to win morality. Our battle is to win souls. And we've got to start looking at the world that way and looking at non-Christians who are suppressing the truth and saying, man, I love you. Because I know you're lost. And I know you want the same thing I want. You want to know God. You'll want to know that you're eternally secure. And you're struggling in your humanity. I get it. I've been there. We're in the same boat. I love you. Looking intently with love. That's the way Jesus looks at people. That's the way we need to learn how to look with people. Not as the opposition, but as our potential brothers and sisters. And going on, it says... He said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Well, wait a minute. Is he telling him if he keeps this commandment, that's the one that he's a little short on, if he keeps this, then he's saved? No. What Jesus is saying is you've got to unpack that stuff. Because if you still have all the stuff that you're carrying, you're not going to want to follow me. You've got to unpack that stuff. You've got to get outside the box. His salvation gang is found in the very last thing Jesus says, Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Does that sound familiar? Back in Mark 8.34, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Young man, you got to deny yourself. All this stuff, all your success, all of your achievement, you gotta, you got to deny that because that's not getting you anywhere. And come follow me. Unpack and come follow me. Jesus likes to travel light. Have you, have you recognized that about Him? He doesn't like to have people travel with burdens and weights and heaviness. Unpack. Get rid of your stuff. And come follow me. And while it's frustrating at one level, it's wonderful at another, the story does not give us a conclusion. We have no idea whatever happened to the fresh prince of Bel-Air. He went off the air, no one knows. We do know that Jesus pulls no punches. He does not soften the truth. He lovingly, He gently brought the issues of divinity, eternity, and humanity to light in this young man's life. And so for us, as we look at this story and think about this, we got to get out of the box. Brothers and sisters, put down your pencils, tear up your lists, leave behind all of your doings. Set that stuff aside. Set aside stress over election losses because that is box checking and it is not our concern. Well, last week you said, last week we hadn't voted yet. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't even mean that to be funny. Last week we had a concern. We needed to do, as Christians, what we were called to do, and that was take the Bible into the ballot box. But last week is last week. And this week, 
We've got to get back to business, which is the business to which we've been called. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says two words, follow me. And our calling in this life is to follow Him and in so doing, to bring these issues to light with people who are not. Amen? Amen. Let's bow and pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for the revelation of Yourself that we get in the Scriptures. Such a joy to be so personal with You. Such a wonder to see You interacting with people and and to sense this in our own hearts. How even as you interacted 2,000 years ago with this young man that you are interacting with us today, that there are those among us who need to put away the lists. Father, so many things that we worry about and yet, Jesus, you said to Martha, only one thing matters. And we are here this morning because we want to follow you. Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts. May we hear your voice say to us today, Come follow me. Come follow me. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never made the decision to unpack and follow Him, then would you this morning pray after me in your heart to Jesus, Lord, I've got a weight of sin on my life. And I've been trying to keep up. And I've been ignoring your reality and eternity. And when these things come to life and I try to figure it out myself, it's frightening. But I hear your voice. Say, follow me. I want to follow you today. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my box checking. Forgive me of anything that has kept me from you. For I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I accept you today as the Savior of my life and as the Lord of my life from now on. Lord, would you unpack all of the stuff in my life that is distracting me from my true mission to bring to light the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Go do as Jesus said.